गुड मॉर्निंग एवरीबडी आई स्नेग्ध शर्मा आई एम गोइंग टू प्रेजेंट द हिंदू एडिटोरियल डेट एट फिफ्टींथ जून टू थाउजेंड ट्वेंटी वन दिस पॉडकास्ट इज फॉर दोज हु डू नॉट हैव टाइम टू रीड न्यूज पेपर दम सेल्स द एनालिसिस ऑफ द एडिटोरियल इज गिवन ऑन द लास्ट सेगमेंट ऑफ द पॉडकास्ट लेट्स गेट स्टार्टेड हैप्पी प्रिपरेशन The first article of the day is the route from Galwan a year later. China is now in a different league competing with the US and New Delhi faces the task of living with an uneasy calm. This article is written by Sushant Singh. On June 15 last year the line of actual control LAC witnessed its first deaths after 1975 when 20 indian soldiers and at least four soldiers of china pla people's liberation army died in a violent clash in galwan in ladakh an indian news report mentioned that around 15 indian soldiers had been taken captive by the pla during the clash and released in batches over 3 days although both countries have given gallantry toward awards to the fallen soldiers details about the violent incident have not been officially made public so far political accountability This is in keeping with the broader approach of the government where no official bearing or press conference about the situation in Ladakh has taken place in the last 13 months. The ministerial statements in parliament were monologues with no questions allowed from other representatives of the people. The official excuse was operational security, but the actual reason was to avoid political embarrassment for Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Four days after the Galwan clash, Mr. Modi addressed an all-party meet where he unequivocally stated, "Na koi waha hamari sima me ghusaya hai, aur na hi koi ghusa hua hai. Na hi hamari koi post kisi ke dwara kabze me ki gayi hai." No one has intruded nor is anyone intruding nor has any post been captured by someone a huge public outcry led to an official clarification by prime minister's office which contained rhetoric that dodged the offending remarks the government's political strategy for dealing with the ladakh border crisis has been based on dodging denial and digression an honest appraisal of the situation in ladakh would be politically costly for a government led by a strong prime minister as pla soldiers remain in control of what was hitherto in indian control despite the largely supportive news channel the government has not been able to convince the public about its version of events in the recent state of nation poll conducted by sea water 44.8% responded said the chinese enrochment in ladakh was a failure of the modi government while only 37.3% uh, said it was not the crisis in ladakh erupted months after mr modi had held his second informal summit with the chinese president xi jinping at mamallapuram tamil nadu and weeks after he hosted the then united states president donald trump for a political event in ahmedabad gujarat for someone attributing his foreign policy power 
grows to the power of his sure uh, of his persona and his personal chemistry with other world leaders there could be no worse rebuttal of his claims than the timing of chinese incursions in a government identified solely with the prime minister and dominated by his office there is no record of the cabinet committee on security being convened to discuss the ladakh border situation mr modi is being held responsible in the public imagination for the setback military situation the current situation is not militarily precarious in ladakh with the continued deployment of 50000 to 60000 soldiers the indian army has been able to hold the line to prevent any further ingress by the pla the chinese presence on the indian side of the lac in gogra hot spring and demchok gives the pla some tactical advantages but the area which majorly jolts indian military plans is the chinese control of deepsang plains with official sources trying to palm it off as a legacy issue despite evidence to the contrary from many retired military officers the indian army has only weakened its negotiating positions during the talks with the pla in any case there is no progress in talks after the disengagement in pangong lake and kalash range in february Outside of Ladakh the Indian army remains in an alert mode all along the LEC to prevent any Chinese misadventure but the bigger change has been its reorientation of certain forces from Pakistan border towards the China border the basis of this shift was articulated by the chief of defense staff general Bipin Rawat when he recently said that China is a bigger security threat for India than Pakistan the Ladakh crisis has also exposed India's military weakness to tackle a collusive threat from china and pakistan to avoid such an eventuality the government opened back channel stocks with pakistan which led to the reiteration of the ceasefire on the line of control external rebalancing the ladakh crisis has also led the government to relook external partnerships particularly with the united states After his meeting with external affairs minister S J Shankar last uh, late last month US Secretary of State Antony Blinken tweeted that they discussed the India China border situation the Indian side was silent about it but senior US military officials have earlier spoken of the intelligence intelligence and logistics support provided to the Indian force in Ladakh While the Indian military has sought to learn from the American experience of implementing the multi-domain operation doctrine to wage a war of the future against the technologically superior PLA. The China is a larger neighbor which has got a better force, better technology, was acknowledged by General Rawat recently to argue that India will obviously prepare for a larger neighbor. The military importance of the Quad remains moot, with India reportedly refusing to do joint naval patrolling with the US in the South China Sea. The true the two treaty allies of the US, Japan and Australia also refused. Moreover, India's focus on its land borders and its limited resources for military modernization in a period of economic decline impinge on its maritime ambitions in the Indo-Pacific. Balancing Act Even as India has tried to talk tough with Beijing and shown greater interest in the Quad, its attempts to counter the bourgeoisie Chinese influence in the neighborhood have faltered excavated by the mishandling of the second wave of the novel coronavirus pandemic 
With the widening power gap between New Delhi and Beijing, the challenge is as much economic as it is geopolitical. Despite the border crisis and the Indian restrictions on Chinese technology companies, China displaced the US to be India's biggest trade partner in 2020-21, up to nearly 30%, 13% of India's total trade compared to 10.4% a year ago. For the Modi government, it has been a difficult balancing act between its domestic rhetoric and external reality. Even though India has been dependent on China for medical equipment to fight the pandemic and ask for assured supplies, the government has been reluctant to publicly acknowledge this dependence. It underplayed Mr. Xi's message to Mr. Modi offering support and assistance. It has asked Beijing to grant visas to Indian students and business persons but has refused medical aid or Chinese vaccines. Simultaneously, New Delhi has placed the border issue at the center of the relationship with China, arguing, arguing that there can be no normalcy without restoration of status quo ante at the border. Unappetizing Choices for the past few decades, Indian planners operated on the premise that their diplomats will be able to manage the Chinese problems without it developing into a full-blown military crisis. That belief has been laid to rest. Militarily, Chinese incursions in Ladakh have shown that the idea of deterrence has failed. A return to the status quo ante of April 2020 remains a mirage with the Chinese side refusing to engage meaningfully after February. New Delhi has learned that it can no longer have sim- simultaneous competition and cooperation with Beijing. The dramatic engagement that started with Rajiv Gandhi's historic visit to China in 1988 is over. The bouquet of choices before the Modi government is not appetizing. A new reset in bilateral ties a la the early 1990s is difficult because China is now in a different league, competing with the US. India will never be comfortable taking sides in a new cold war between the US and China as it has always valued its strategic sovereignty. Beijing seems as keen as New Delhi to avoid a military conflict, though accidents such as Galwan can never be ruled out. That leaves India with the daunting task of living with this tense and uneasy calm with China for some time, a challenge brought to the fore by the Ladakh crisis. The events of the past one year have significantly altered India's thinking towards China. The relationship as is at the crossroads now. The choices made in New Delhi will have a significant impact on the future of global geopolitics. The next article of the day is Unlocking War Histories with a Purpose The declassification of India's military history could also lead to building on success and avoiding past follies. This article is written by Arjun Subramaniam. Saturday's announcement by Defence Minister Rajnath Singh on archiving, declassifying and compiling of war histories is a long overdue initiative that signals that the Ministry of Defence is at last willing to shed its shroud of confidentiality over happening long gone by. Largely conforming to global practices, the policy has the potential to kickstart multiple initiatives within the MOD and the three services that will offer researchers, analysts and historians an easy lens into studying military operations in the post-independence period. 
interlinked challenges drawing on my own experiences of 9 years as practitioner historian who has struggled to put together two definitive historical and joint narratives of war and conflict in contemporary india conversion of this policy into deliverables will be a tough and unglamorous grind the four biggest challenges facing this initiative will be the fusion of political directives and strategic decision making with the operational and tactical happening on ground compilation and reconciling an analysis of events at multiple levels headquarters commands and field formations putting together a team of dedicated researchers and historians with a mix of academics and practitioners with access to records and files and lastly putting together a concurrent oral history and digitalize digitization of all archival compilations associated with this initiative decisions to go to war and wage conflict in democracies are largely political decisions and it is important that such decisions are fused into compilations of our war histories for example one of the reasons why the indian army is reluctant to declassify the henderson brooks report that considered operational failures during the 1962 war with china is because it is largely a scathing indictment of indian army's leadership without any accountabilities assigned to the political establishment led by jawaharlal nehru and krishna menon On the other hand several histories of Vietnam war and now we considered credible and well rounded because researchers have had access not only to operational accounts but also to archive discussions between the political architect of the conflict such as president JF Kennedy and Lyndon B Johnson and defense secretary Robert S McMera Similarly General K Sundarji and Ambassador J N Dikshit have borne the brunt of much criticism by researchers examining India's intervention in Sri Lanka from 1987 to 1990 because they expressed themselves in the open domain without fear but it is only when researchers got access to records of discussions involving other generals and admirers and air marshals and even prime minister rajiv gandhi minister of state for defense arun singh and even political heavyweights in tamil nadu such as mg ramachandran and m karunanidhi then the cow cobwebs around operation pavan will be cleared on brass tacks most military historians of contemporary india agree that excise brass tax 1886-87 heralded the transformation of indian war fighting doctrines tactics techniques and procedures in conventional war fighting particularly in the plains and the desert however all of them including this writer have relied on oral recollections to put together a mosaic of what may have transpired in the confines of the military operations directorate or the army headquarters and thereafter writing the official history of the excise brass tax must be high on the list of the initial projects in this initiative as it will highlight the fusion of decisions taken at multiple headquarters right down to the regiment and squadron level the right approach needed notwithstanding the efforts taken to put together official histories of the 1965 and 71 wars 
These are considered as safe histories that only scratch the surface of strategic decision making, operational analysis, leadership and lessons for the future. The reason for this is the absence of a robust multidisciplinary term teams that are required to put together each such history and the desire to bring out non-controversial documents. While highlighting controversies and failures must not be an obsession with such initiatives. It is only a robust academic come practitioner flavor accompanied by good and contemporary writing that will lend weight to such histories. Unlike the Ministry of External Affairs, which has stolen a march over other ministries and declassifying files, the three service headquarters and MOD have been rather slow in initiating this. Not only is it difficult to trace files from erase gone, it is highly possible that in the absence of digital conversion, several priceless discussions have been destroyed in the period of discarding of files. But even if such files are available, who will spend long hours trying to identify elements that remain historically relevant? Digitization and creation of oral histories will form a critical component of this transformation. Both are either unfolding at a snail's pace or are absent in our existing official repositories of histories. At the service headquarters of war colleges, a software measure must be roped in for this and an outreach must be made to individual historians, think tanks and global repositories to share their oral history collections on contemporary Indian military history. The first chapter. Considering the timeline of 25 years, I suggested list of classification to trigger this transformative info initiatives are the Nehru Nathula skirmish of 1967, the lightning campaign in the Eastern Theatre during the 1971 war, Operation Meghdoot that was on Siachen, Excise Brass Tech and its subsidiary operations and Operation Falcon, Sandorong Chu. Less initiative uh, be accused of only showcasing successes, Operation Pavan, Indian Peacekeeping Force picture too needs to be officially written about, albeit with a due sensitivity. One of the hallmarks of a leading power, emerging power, power of consequence and a le leading military is the ability to take criticism, tackle institutional reluctance to expose fault lines with push forward with reform with a big picture in mind. History does not offer a blueprint for the future, but it is certainly instructive in building on successes and not repeating the follies of the past. That proposition must be the bedrock on which this initiative takes off. The next article of the day is Numero Uno. Djokovic is now in sight of a golden slam after winning on a difficult surface. Novak Djokovic has always maintained that ending his career with the most number of Grand Slam titles is one of his prime motivation to keep playing tennis. In the Roland Garros final on Sunday, he took a giant stride in realizing this dream with a sensational come from behind five-set victory over the fast-rising Greek step nose Tsitsipas Paz for his 19th major, pulling him within one title of his celebrated rivals Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. It was a Serbs second French Open trophy, making him only the third man in the history after Roy Emerson and Rod Laver and first in the Open era post-1967 to win all four slams at least twice. 
the rhythmical lure of the record's side the sense of completeness and the feeling of sporting Im- immortality it brings even to a career as storied as djokovic is unparalleled so with the 34 year old's semi final victory over 13 times champion nadal the greatest of all clay court quarters that djokovic had The tennis to challenge the Spaniard was never in doubt. What was astonishing was the way he bounced back from the shell, shocking in the last year's final and outwitted an informed Nadal. For Djokovic to not fall off the imminent emotional cliff and defeat Tsitsipas, a player 12 years younger, brought to light one of his constant themes, poise and resilience under relentless pressure. The triumph is yet another reminder that Djokovic is this era's most complete player. When Federer has tweaked his shot making with a larger racket head and Nadal has displayed new levels of aggression, Djokovic has prioritized balance, footwork and timing. Currently no one can perhaps hit as well as Djokovic from both wings with pace and spin at varied angles even when on defense. As Nadal and Tsitsipas found out over exactly 4 hours and 11 minutes each a tennis court had never felt smaller this has now kindled hopes of a golden grand slam a herculean feat of winning all four majors and the olympic gold in a single year however if there is one man who has dared to dream and succeeded it is djokovic unseated barbaras krizvoka Kriskova perhaps took Q and became the Czech Republic's first singles champion in Paris in 40 years providing a storyline to latch onto after Naomi Osaka's withdrawal because of mental health concerns and Serena Williams early exit 9 months ago Krizikova was ranked outside the top 100 and had appeared in only 3 singles main draws at slams But with two doubles and three mixed doubles trophies, she was no stranger to success. Over the last fortnight, with her delightfully languid but polished game, she became the first woman since Mary Pierce in 2000 to sweep both singles and doubles at Roland Garros. The next article is Preserving India's archives moving the collection in the national archives annex needs careful planning and execution this article is written by uday balkrishnan the national archive is the primary repository of documents on india's past the last time it was in the news was in 2016 when digital copies of files relating to netaji subhash chandra bose was made publicly accessible The imminent demolition of its annex by the government of India has brought the institution to public attention once again. A petition by leading Indian and foreign scholars is in circulation demanding that the government show greater openness in the proposed demolition of the National Archives annex and the safe storage of its contents since several centuries of India's history lie in the document that make up the National Archives of India. The petition said the archival records include 4.5 million files, 25,000 rare manuscripts, more than 100,000 maps, treaties, 280,000 pre-modern documents and several thousands private papers. The loss or damage of a single object or archival record would be an irrevocable. 
cable loss the annex also houses the cartography section and 150000 150000 oriental records in persian arabic and urdu the birch bark and clay coated gilgit manuscripts in the national archives are according to unesco the oldest surviving manuscripts in india these include canonical and non canonical buddhist work that throw light on the evolution of sanskrit chinese korean japanese mongolian manchu tibetan religion philosophical literature poor shape the national archive is in poor shape a series of articles published in the new york times in march 2012 by the historian denier patel late bear the parlous state of the national archives he noted among other things that letters penned by mohandas karamchand gandhi bhr ambedkar gopal krishna gokhale and other eminent indian naturalists have suffered from exposure to humid weather staff negligence and mishandling and improper preservation methods things have improved since then but not enough writing in the telegraph online of may 30 2021 sanaz is assistant professor of aligarh muslim university of history at aligarh muslim university pointed to lack of expertise to manage acquisition which has led to the locking up of some of the rare documents in persian urdu arabic sanskrit prakrit tamil malayalam and modi records from maharashtra moving the collections in the national archives annex needs careful planning and execution few know this better than the british library its guide from its preservation advisory center titled moving library and archive collection is a succinct succinct and comprehensive covering every aspect of shifting an archive a significant point it makes is that the order in which the collection is to be moved and unpacked must be carefully considered and mapped In the long term it is cheaper to put items into their correct place straight away rather than being rushed into a random storage arrangement. Moving contents. Those who are protesting the demolition of the annex include scholars holding important positions in some of the best institutions. They have access to the finest archival expertise in the world. They are best placed to produce a detailed report on how to move the contents of the National Archive Annex and share it with the governments giving names of institutions and experts willing to help. Not just the National Archives but those of the states too are in poor shape. A case in point is the goa archive is one of the oldest in the country it contains material relevant not just to india but also to the rest of asia europe africa and south america while making their proposal these scholars would do well to recommend an integrated national approach to archival management bringing together states archives too the private sector could be brought in to construct a world class building within the next 2 years as part of csr and have the annex collections shifted there such a project will do a lot of good for india's image rather than all the protests from a community of concerned which incidentally is all of us